Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. It is my great privilege to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week, Donald E. McInnes, who is the author of a terrific book you ought to read. It's called She's So Cold, Murder, Accusations, and the System That Devastated a Family. He is a California criminal defense attorney, and he represented one of the three accused boys, Aaron Hauser, in the Stephanie Crow murder case. Over the span of his 40-year legal career, Mr. McGinnis has worked alternately for the prosecution and for the defense, having served as a deputy district attorney for two California counties and as a deputy public defender for one California county during his early professional years. His website is donaldmcinnis.com. Don McGinnis welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Thank you. So the Stephanie Crow murder case, I believe, was a big news story back around 1998 or so, but can you remind people what it was? Uh, yes, actually it uh, drug on for almost 10 years, and uh, that was due to the fact that the police totally mishandled the investigation. It had to do with the murder of a lovely 12-year-old girl, Stephanie, in her own bedroom. She was stabbed to death brutally. And uh, the police could find no evidence of a break-in. And as a consequence, they first turned to the father, but the father seemed to grieve so much that they eliminated him. And then one officer talked to the detectives and said that Michael Crow, the 14-year-old brother, was not grieving appropriately. And so they focused on him, interrogated him for 8 to 10 hours, and were able to get a confession out of him. Now, when you say a confession, that requires a little uh, explanation, both for people who who somehow persevere in imagining that false confessions don't happen and in and in describing exactly what it is that gets characterized as a confession here, right? Well, that's what the, the prosecutors characterized it as. What he said was, I could not remember doing anything to Stephanie. They told him that there was two Michaels, an evil Michael and a good Michael, and that the evil Michael killed uh, Stephanie. And as a consequence, it's natural that the good Michael cannot remember. He then wrote a letter to Stephanie saying that, I don't remember harming you, but I do wish that nothing had ever happened to you. And he went on to pour his heart out to his sister, and then the end... He said, if I did this, then I deserve what I am getting. And that's what the police considered to be a confession. One thing that's incredible is that they would call that a confession. And I understand you didn't think it looked like a confession and the judge didn't think it looked like a confession. But but the, the other thing that's incredible is that, that Michael would, would say that. Typically, if somebody walks up to you and says, you know, there's an evil you who just robbed my house, uh, you wouldn't say, oh, really, if I did that, I'm sorry. I mean, what, how do you explain Michael even going so far as to say, if I did it, I'm sorry? Well, that's the burden that every defense attorney faces whenever they have what appears to be a confession or an outright confession from their client. The jurors accept that, and and you try to explain to them how it came about. And in this particular case, we were able to do it before a judge, and the judge was uh, had what was called a 707 hearing, which basically in California means 
she was determining whether or not the boys would stand trial for murder in adult court and face a sentence of life in prison. And although she passed the case on, she did rule that she didn't buy anything that the police did. She did not accept the confession. She felt it was coerced. So that was a tremendous victory. But the reason that you get these confessions is that the police use what is called psychologically motivated accusatorial uh, confrontation. It's an interrogation method where they simply beat you down. It starts off in a small room, windowless, no window at all, very claustrophobic. And they leave you there for a long period of time, and then they come in and they begin to ask closed-ended, pointed questions. And by the time they're done with you, rotating officer after officer in through the interrogation, even adults succumb and uh, confess to a crime they didn't do. And, and the extremely fortunate uh, circumstance here is that uh, this confession and the, and the interrogations of the of the other two boys, they brought two other boys into this as a as a trio, uh, were all videotaped, or for the for the most part, were videotaped, right? Yes, and that is one of the things that I recommend in my children's bill of rights that every interrogation of a child has to be videotaped and that the uh, police department has to keep that on record for as, as a permanent record because later on, years later, they can be charged as an adult for the crime that they were uh, being charged as a juvenile, even though, as in this case, they, the charges were dismissed. So that was one of the big, big pluses we had in regards to this case. You could see the torturous inquisition that was going on with each one of the three boys. In fact, that's what my book does. I take it transcript by transcript, hour by hour. And the reader has a hard time reading what those boys went through. You have to put the book down from time to time because it is brutal. Uh, I can uh, admit that is absolutely correct. It is powerful and it is painful, uh, but I think people should read it. Um, I, I, I wonder if those interrogations had not been videotaped and you weren't able to produce the transcripts in a book and you weren't able to see them when you were considering taking on the case as a defense attorney, would would you have been able to to believe in the client's innocence? Would he have been able to find any defense attorney who would defend him believing in his innocence if there had just been the record of a confession rather than uh, videotapes of it? We would not have been able to get those charges dismissed against the boys without those videotapes. In fact, even with the videotape, we faced the difficult task of the judge ruling portions of the tapes could not come in, but other portions of the tape, especially in regards to Joshua Treadway, the other 14-year-old boy who confessed to everything, we could not have uh, had a chance. It, it is a difficult task. Jurors accept confession for the written word, 
it is one of the hardest things to overcome as a defense attorney. But in this case, uh, you, you did overcome it, and, and two out of the three boys have, have received multi-million dollar settlements, correct? Yes, uh, but even better than that, all three boys were found factually, and that's an important word, factually innocent. Not, not guilty, but factually innocent by a superior court judge in California, meaning that anything relating to the death of Stephanie Crow that those boys had nothing to do with it. And that was brought in a special proceeding before the Superior Court a couple of years after the charges were dropped and uh, the vagrant was charged with the case. So a, a very different outcome from that of the, the case of the Central Park uh, Five accused of, of raping and killing a, a jogger that's been uh, newly in the news uh, lately. Those five boys actually were sentenced and went to prison eventually as they turned uh, 18. Uh, In New York, I believe they can be sent to prison at 16. But they were sent to prison, and they served almost 12 years. And and what, what comparisons do you see between the two cases? Oh, there's... There is no civil authority there to put on the brakes. 
We're speaking with Donald McGinnis about his book, She's So Cold, Murder Accusations and the System that Devastated a Family. Don, if uh, if one of these crimes, like the Stephanie Crow murder or the Central Park jogger murder or any other crime, uh, is, is not solved, is that a failure? Do we have to blame somebody for that? I, I get the impression that police and prosecutors uh, simply view any unsolved case uh, as a failure uh, and prosecuting somebody, anybody within reach, as preferable. Well, as you can tell, there are many unsolved cases that years later, thank God, due to the existence of DNA, advanced, in fact, DNA uh uh, capabilities are solved on unsolved cases and wrongly solved cases that's correct and the police do look at an unsolved case as a failure and in fact they usually the police chief is appointed so his job is on the line so this all this pressure in this paramilitary organization of the police department to solve these cases um, regrettably in the Crow murder case, the evidence was so mishandled that even when they had the prime suspect, which was the vagrant, Richard Tuitt, a mentally disturbed young man, who was at, the, at that night, who that night was out looking for his girlfriend Tracy, or a girl named Tracy, that happens to look a lot like Stephanie Crow, by the way, uh, at they had him. They had his clothing. That's how we were able to find DNA of Stephanie on the blood on his clothing. And uh, if it hadn't been for them at least doing this sweep of the area and bringing in everybody possible, those young men would have faced a very difficult trial. So when a case is not handled properly by the police, when they jump to assumptions, and in the uh, Crow case, there was no physical evidence that was found at the murder scene, as there was no physical evidence tying the Central Park Five. Then the police reach into their basket of tricks and apply psychological interrogation techniques. The primary one that was applied both to the Central Park Five and to the Crow murder case was the Reed technique of interrogation. And, and they not only went after each of these three boys, but went after their parents as potential accomplices, uh, if possible, and, and persuaded one of the boys' fathers, father to, to help them somewhat, didn't they? Well, that was Mr. Tewitt. And the unknown story behind Mr. Tewitt telling his son to it, cooperate with the police and tell them everything that they want to know. It's the fact that he was the, he was a locksmith, and he was the one uh, that the police would call to board up and lock a house after they had done a raid. So he thought that he had a special relationship with the police, Escondido Police Department, and as a consequence, he believed everything that they told him, not knowing that his son faced the potential of being charged with murder. And so he went in and told his son, even though his son, in tears, hugged his father and said, I didn't do it. I didn't do it, Dad. 
he said, you tell them what they want to know. So as a consequence, in my book, I have what's called a children's bill of rights. And whenever there is a relationship that exists where the parent has either too close, as in the Tuit case situation, or if the parent is in the cells charged with the crime, then they are provided a public defender. The only way the rights of a child can be protected is children cannot protect themselves. It, it still seems bizarre to me that that father would believe the police over his own son and that the son uh, and, and his friends would believe the most bizarre claims from the police, including, as you mentioned earlier, that you, you have some second demon inside of you who committed this crime unbeknownst to you yourself. Uh, it, it, it seems to me we ought to not only be providing rights for children and adults, but but educating them and explaining to them why they're needed uh, and, uh, and, and teaching them to be skeptical and not to believe crazy things that the police tell you. Uh, do, we, do we have a problem in our culture of, of somehow educating people to believe that the, that the craziest thing is, is gospel truth as long as a police officer said it? Well, here's the problem. We tell children from day one that the police are there to protect them, that the police will save them if the boogeyman comes after them. And these children are taught to look for a police officer if they are in fear. So there is ingrained within them this need, this belief that the police are someone who can protect them. And in addition to that, children face the world, and that world is an adult world. It is a world where adults, adults tell them what to do, when to do it, and how to do it. So as a consequence, these children are very, very vulnerable. And yes, we need to educate them. We need to tell them what they have in the way of rights, that they are an adult in, in the eyes of the law and can be charged as an adult in the eyes of the law, but I'm afraid that we're bucking a lot of societal rules that parents tell their children to function by. I mean, if if you have a child and the child's principal calls up and tells you your child's been acting up and describes what it is, and your child says no, guess what? You're going to believe the principle nine times out of ten. Are you going to wish that your child would be telling you the truth? So -hmm. the bottom line is the child is in a very, very special area that the U.S. Supreme Court says needs protection. And that protection has to be provided one way or the other, and currently it is not being provided. Well, I'm I'm extremely grateful to my own parents in such situations because they did not believe the principle, and I would not <laughs> e- either believe the principle. And it may be that we need to improve our uh, relationships with our children and respect for our children. But uh, I, I, I just describe for people what what would be in uh, your children's bill of rights and and in your improved Miranda warning for children. Well, the Miranda warnings continually tell the child not only that they have the right to remain silent, but we try to explain what the right 
of silence means. Children don't understand it. Uh, psychological, sociological, and neurological tests over and over again come to the conclusion that children just don't understand their Miranda rights. If you're 17 and uh, have had contact with the police, you're smart enough to say, I'm not going to talk to you. I want to talk to a lawyer. But if you're 17 and haven't had contact with the authorities, you probably will talk to them. Test after test after test shows this. And 16- and 15-year-olds definitely waive their rights continually, not knowing what it means. In fact, tests have shown that the word, you have the right to consult with an attorney, they think that means to talk to an attorney in juvenile court. They don't understand that it means during the interrogation that they can actually have an attorney present. So we try to explain that. But more importantly, we add in that they have the right to talk to their parents. So when the Miranda rights are given to the child, the child is told, you have the right to have your parents present during all stages of the questioning. And most children will ask for their parents. The Miranda rights for children is also worded in such a way that when the parent gets there, they understand that they have a right to invoke uh, and have an attorney present and to tell their children to have an attorney present. So that's something that we've added to this to make it more protective for children. The Children's Bill of Rights is actually uh, very different. It says at age 14 that the child cannot waive their rights, that an attorney must be present to advise them of their rights and to concur in the waiver of their rights. And anything above 14, 15, 16, and 17-year-olds, the child can waive their rights, but only after consultation with their parents and with an attorney, which means the child won't do it. They won't waive their rights. And also the the uh, Bill of Rights says that the children and through their parents and through their attorney should ask why the police are investigating and talking to them. And once that information is obtained, then the adult or the guardian or the attorney can make a wiser decision. Finally, it says that children cannot be interrogated for more than four hours, that they must be given sleep, that there must be eight hours between each four-hour period of interrogation, and they must be fed, and that's very important, as well as that the interrogation should be videotaped, has to be videotaped, and that the interrogation tapes are kept uh, forever. It seems like a very reasonable proposal to me. I, I wonder also, you know, there is a treaty called the Convention on the Rights of the Child that every single nation on earth is party to except for this one. Uh, and it includes in it that a child cannot be compelled to give a confession uh, and that children cannot be put in prison for life, uh, which other other countries don't do. Uh, ought the United States to get with the program and uh, ratify the Convention on the Rights of the Child? 
the the international covenant for the rights of children does not provide the same protection that the bill of rights that i have for children it doesn't uh, take the next step uh, further and delineate such as uh, having a lawyer present such as uh, you know they can only be interrogated for four hours and after that they must have eight hours rest it doesn't get into the detail and it deals more with uh, food the right to uh, be safe things like this sure so but I agree with you the United States should join that, and that, and God knows why we don't. The uh, the police in in this case, uh, they they took each boy and told them falsely that they had evidence against him, and that the other two boys were giving evidence against him, and so forth. They don't. They've never maintained that they weren't lying to each of these children, right? Um, In in court, once we had them in court and could cross-examine them, they admitted that they lied to the children. In particular, they admitted that they lied about the computerized voice uh, test that was given. It was a voice stress analyzer. And uh, they would give the boys the test, and then they would say, see, you're lying to it. The machine is impartial infallible and you were lying to it and it wasn't even a lie detector test it was a voice stress analyzer test right which has many many critics but the boys when confronted with this didn't know what to do uh I, most people wouldn't uh, we we've got just a minute or two left you know there it, there is a, a a character in this uh true story the the prosecutor in the hearing who uh, apparently is now the district attorney of San Diego and despite the fact that these boys got huge settlements there was not any penalty for her is that right uh, the story behind this is that Paul Finks was the deputy district attorney at the time uh, he ran and stood for re-election. A judge, Dumanis, ran against him. She defeated him. The sole issue was the Crow murder case. So he was voted out of office. Judge Dumanis became the uh, dis- district attorney of San Diego County. And slowly but surely, uh, 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 the uh, prosecutor that of, of the case worked her way up and was number two in the office, and then uh, Demonis agreed uh, to step down, and then that's how she uh, was appointed first by the county to become the district attorney, and then she stood for re-election. Do you think that that there ought to be consequences for prosecutors who pursue such cases? That, that is a question that uh, should be applied. Let me put it this way. The voters have the final say in regards to who is going to be the district attorney. It is our power to vote them in and out of office based upon their performance. For some reason, well, Deputy DA Summer Steffen never, her conduct 
and handling of the prosecution of the three boys was never focused on. Instead, it was Paul Fink. Uh, very well said, and I highly recommend the book. Unfortunately, we're out of time. The book is called She's So Cold, Murder, Accusations, and the System That Devastated a Family by Donald E. McKinnis. Don McKinnis, thank you for coming on Talk Nation Radio. Thank you. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.